Welcome, welcome, welcome to another week of spooktacular spoopocity with the Spoop Boys. <laughs> Great setup for the intro, Monster Boy. This is Watch If You Dare, a podcast about horror movies and why they make us scared. This week we are going to be digging into a David Lynch classic, which I say that all of his movies are treasures, but we are going to be discussing Lost Highway from 1997. Yes, and I am super excited that we are finally getting to Lynch, uh, even though this is like, what, the fifth or sixth episode, I say finally, but Lynch has, uh, you were the one who turned me on to Lynch uh, a while back with Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet was what you kind of recommended first or started me off with. We also watched Mulholland Drive back when we were still in college. I came over to your place and we watched that. I don't always understand some of the stuff with Lynch. It usually takes me a couple of viewings and kind of reading analysis. I don't think anybody does. True. But I just love his work, and this was more of the same, which is a good thing. I really enjoyed Lost Highway. Yeah, this is definitely going to be our first horror-adjacent title. Um, this movie is not explicitly horror, but it is full of horrifying stuff, uh, so it's definitely worth talking about especially considering that the entire idea of our podcast is let's discuss why this is scary and discuss the things that are kind of lying beneath the surface and lynch is obviously the most that's the most obvious example of what's beneath the surface and not explicitly textual um so we're gonna spend some time discussing that but first Derek, have you indulged in anything fun related to comics, movies, books, etc. this past week? So once again, I have some more comic uh, recommendations. Video game-wise, I've been playing the living shit out of Spider-Man, and there's no horror in that. So <laughs> I, I can't really say anything in the video game realm other than watching Lost Highway. I haven't really viewed any horror, and so all my horror the last week besides Lost Highway was again from comics and I know that we've already recommended a few comics so I tried to go a little bit more off the beaten path with some of the stuff I'm reading so here I'm, I'm just going to run down four titles that I picked out of my stack that I read recently hack slash resurrection which is actually the second volume of the hack slash series uh, this one is written by teeny howard um, I believe tim seeley is also involved in the creative team uh, k michael russell this follows Cassie Hack, her and her friend Vlad. Uh, they basically hunt down serial killers who are like slashers, like in slasher movies and horror movies. Um, apparently in this world that it, it's just kind of like a thing that they're almost like supervillains. They're just all around the world and they basically hunt them down. It sounds kind of silly in premise and that's kind of the point. It's gory, kind of tongue-in-cheek slasher comic kind of grindhousey like the hair the character of cassie in general the way even she dresses and looks is very grindhouse uh so i highly recommend that if any of that is kind of up your alley and more of the mainstream this one is actually coming out of marvel is the current moon knight series uh, i recommend this for a few reasons because it kind of stands on its own it doesn't really ever crossover with any of the the bullshit like main events that are happening in the marvel universe it's just kind of its own thing it's currently being written by max bemis or bemis i'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his last name art is by jason burrows and the covers are by becky clunan 
who has done a lot of work, and I really enjoy the covers for Moon Knight. Uh, just to give you an idea of kind of like the direction that this goes, it, it, this is kind of the Moon Knight series a little bit is kind of Lynchian. It's kind of more mindfuck in a lot of ways. Uh, or the the storyline that literally just wrapped up was him going to like this society of sadists of like murderers and serial killers who are like inducted into like a secret society, basically like it's a fraternity. And so he goes in disguised as like one of his personalities because he has like four or five different personalities. Cause he's also insane and kind of goes in there to basically like take it down from the inside. And it just kind of follows his own madness as well as the madness of this kind of cult, a very kind of more obscure comic is from vault comics, which is kind of a very smaller publisher when compared to Marvel DC and image. This one is called submerged and submerged is written by Vita Ayala. It is literally about a girl going after her little brother, and it's kind of like a terrifying, surrealist, dark fantasy. It's almost like a modern tale of Orpheus set in the underworld, and if the underworld is basically the New York subway system, the night of like a terrible flood that's uh, with this storm that's about to come in. Right off the bat in the first issue or two, one of the first monsters she encounters is a woman in white or like a weeping woman, which if you're familiar with that, that's that's a ghost of a woman who either, depending on what legend you go by, it's a woman who either murdered her own children or... Uh, her children died and she committed suicide. I probably am fucking up that luncheon, but you get the idea. And then my last recommendation is another image comic, and it is Evolution, which I believe is like on issue 10 or 11. I, I think there's two trades out for it already. And this is uh, being written by James Asmus, who actually wrote uh, uh, The Last Gambit standalone for Marvel, which I thought he did a good job with. But it, he is one of the r- contributing writers, as well as Joseph uh, Keating, who has done quite well with his recent runs of uh, uh, what comes to mind is Shudder, and uh, he's currently writing Flavor, I believe. Uh, another writer on here is Joshua Williamson. The art and covers are by Joe and Fury- Funeri and Jordan Boyd. This, it's kind of a mystery that follows, it's through the eyes of like uh, multiple people, as there's this global phenomenon going around where people are either evolving or there's some alien menace causing humanity to evolve in very rapid unpredictable ways think like parts of their body becoming things like from the thing one like one of the characters is a doctor who kind of has gone insane and thinks he's saving the world by like hunting these people down and experimenting on them but like the things he's doing are just as fucked up as like the actual infection that's going on another follows a nun who finds a guy who was infected in the church and he transfers whatever's going on to her and it's almost like is this more of a spiritual thing so it shows that side of it so it's very it's a very fun comic if you're into more like alien sci-fi horror body horror especially i highly recommend this one um speaking of like the woman in white thing i probably mentioned on a previous episode somewhere that Heather and I had been watching um, Sharp Objects on HBO, which is another adaptation of a Gillian Flynn novel. She's the same author who did Gone Girl. This also deals with a lot of female characters who have lots of baggage and are slightly broken in different ways that you don't really see a lot of film and tv especially deal with um so the series was very good it's about 
a reporter who kind of moves away from her small Missouri town to get away from the town and her family and just all the bad stuff there. And she ends up kind of getting coerced to go back and cover this murder of these two teenage girls. There is some weird imagery involving a woman in white kind of thing luring children off potentially um, that plays into their kind of a minor way into that plot. So that series is definitely worth checking out. That's also, I, w I would maybe say it's horror adjacent. There's definitely some vibes of Silence of the Lambs if you kind of just take all of the West Virginia part of that story out. So that was that was a very good miniseries on HBO. Besides that, because my job was crazy busy this past week, um, I spent some time at my parents' house crashing with them while I was working out of town, and I threw on Shudder, my favorite streaming service, Shudder, shout out, yo, come sponsor us one of these <laughs> days. I spent some time catching up on some of the Joe Bob Briggs last drive-in episodes, and these are all movies that I've seen a million times, but it's just fun to have the little interludes with Joe Bob discussing the movie and his trademark goofy kind of way so i watched basket case which is a classic that movie's especially fun because it just shows that side of new york and times square especially that's just really gross it's from the 70s and 80s era where there's just trash everywhere and porn theaters and it's just so nuts because the only new york that you and i have ever known is that very squeaky clean Disney, Times Square, tourist safe kind of era. You know, I remember when my family went to New York in the early 90s on vacation. It was right when everything was kind of starting to be cleaned up. So I remember it being kind of on the edges of being gross, but not what it was in this movie. And seeing these gross walk-up apartments um, is kind of hilarious. But uh, it's funny that you mentioned New York, by the way, uh, because my family is from New York. I'm literally like the only one in my immediate family who was born outside of New York. And uh, so we went up like when I was a kid growing up, we went up there to visit all the time as well. And my parents would always tell me like, yeah, Times Square used to be like after dark, you didn't go there unless like you wanted to look for trouble, basically. And then when we went there, it was just like, oh, this is the greatest fucking place on earth. This is Disneyland yeah. if Disneyland was a street uh, in the middle of a city. Yeah, and I, I remember just a few years ago when I went up there with some of our friends to meet up with another friend who had just gotten back into the country. We just kind of took a quick trip up there for maybe 48 hours and just walking around with them. And there was literally like good morning america shooting there was like a whole giant military choir that was going on like it was just so strange to be in times square where there's stuff happening that's not completely lurid uh the other one that i watched from the last drive-in set was demons um which is another hilariously goofy italian one the soundtrack in that movie is fantastic i love all the weird electronic drums and shit that's on that soundtrack
that's a very fun movie that I would one day want to see in a theater with a crowd. Derek, since you haven't seen it, it's a movie about these teenagers going to a movie theater and seeing a movie about demons and then the demons get loose in the movie theater with them. So then to like see that in a theater in real life and just kind of have those like three layers of meta-ness is kind of something I've always wanted to experience but never have had the chance. Yeah, I remember you either told me about this in the past a little bit or I've read about it or maybe even seen a couple scenes from it. But this has been a movie that I, I would definitely like us to explore on a future episode. It sounds like a very fun movie. So I watched those. Um, I did also watch uh, My Bloody Valentine via Tubi TV, which is another free streaming service. Basically just caught up on some classics and turned my brain off a little bit trying to get away from work. Beyond that, some other things that I do want to kind of discuss briefly. First of all, the trailer for the new season of Channel Zero dropped, and I'm kind of excited about that. I was going to mention, because I think I also saw on Shudder that either Channel Zero is either coming to Shudder or is already on Shudder. Is that true? They just added Season 2. Okay. Uh, Season 1 got added a while back. It is fantastic. I love Season 1. Season 2 got added, and I'm not super hot on that season. It's got a lot of bits and pieces that don't really fall into place and connect. There's also just a lot of, like, isn't this weird for the sake of it being weird? And there's no real connection. Isn't every season based off of a, like, famous creepypasta? Yes. So, Season 1 is Candle Cove. Yeah. Which is the, like, kids' TV show with the puppets. That video is, like, I, I've i seen it, everyone's seen that video a hundred times if you're any kind of horror fan and, like, have, like, any ever done a deep dive into creepypasta, but that video is still creepy as fuck when, every time I watch it. Yeah, so that whole series is specifically about this group of people who remember watching this puppet show when they were kids, and kind of the hook is... But there was nothing actually on the TV. Y'all would just sit in front of static all day. Ooh, right? Um, So the show kind of fleshes that out more. Season 2 is No End House. And it's based on this walk-through haunted house kind of thing with each room getting progressively weirder and scarier. And so these girls go into it and weird, scary things happen. And it kind of follows them out into the real world. That season was... Okay, it was well made, I just don't necessarily think all the pieces fell together because, again, there's a lot of, like, isn't this spooky? And then there doesn't tie into the plot at all. Yeah, I haven't I haven't read that creepypasta or looked into it, but it honestly sounded a little bit like House of Leaves from the pr- basic premise that I was reading. A little bit. And Season 3, that one specifically, was based on Butcher's Block. Well, it's called Butcher's Block, but I think the creepypasta is called something else. But it's this girl who moves to i think they moved to detroit specifically and she's there with her sister and they're trying to just kind of start fresh and so they find a place to move into and they start investigating all these weird disappearances around the city um, mostly homeless people and vagrants but there's a family who's run a meatpacking company for decades and you know it all kind of goes from there but the new season looks very interesting the trailer has a couple move into a house that was kind of handed down by one of their parents 
and as they're fixing up the house, they find this weird door in the basement, and they're trying to figure out what's behind the door. It also has this super creepy weirdo character that's her imaginary friend come to life, and that element is super fun looking so i'm excited about that ready to check it out is the tooth monster and which season is that one in that's in season one okay because i always see that thing everywhere yeah that's still there's a moment in that first season like i'm I'm literally kind of getting skin chills thinking about it right now there's a part in that first season that creeps me out so bad and i don't want to discuss it because i want people to just go watch the season and figure out what I'm talking about but there's a moment that it hits on a lot of my specific weird fears and it's it's one of the creepiest things I've seen on TV and it's very innocuous on the surface like it's not extreme gore or violence or anything like that it's just something that happens that's very disturbing so let's go ahead and get started with lost highway i got my damn fine cup of coffee with me so i'm ready to go i got my spoopy weather and my little baby dog is cowering at my feet because she hates bad weather we've met before haven't we i don't think so at your house don't you remember no i don't as a matter of fact i'm there right now that's crazy man Call me. I like that. I think there's no such thing as a bad coincidence. I like to remember things my own way, not necessarily the way they happened. Someone broke in and taped us while we slept. Is that you? Are both of them you? We have to get out of here. Why didn't you tell me anything? It's been a pleasure talking to you. So, let's get started and discuss David Lynch's Lost Highway from 1997. I just want to lead off, like, before you get into the scene by scene, I just want to leave off, lead off with this quote because I want to do this up top because this quote kind of pulls the whole movie together in a lot of ways. And there's a scene where Pullman is asked by a police officer at one point, like, they bring up a video camera and his wife mentions that he doesn't like video cameras. And what he says is, I like to remember things my own way how I remembered them, not necessarily how they happened. Keep that quote in mind as we go through this movie because I think it is the main thing that ties this whole thing together. Absolutely, and we will definitely be digging into that a little bit more because you're right, that is kind of the entire crux of this movie. So, this movie came out in 1997. Um, This was after Twin Peaks and Wild at Heart had both been out for a while. Um, Lynch had kind of taken some sideways steps into other types of projects but this was kind of his comeback into the dark weird oddly enough too i think he even has said in the past that this movie might be tangentially connected to the twin peaks universe i was going to wait to ask you that because there there was a a couple scenes in particular where i was like are we straight up kind of like 
getting glimpses of the Black Lodge? There's a lot of Black Lodge stuff in yeah. there. Like, for instance, in their apartment, there are the you know the floor to ceiling red curtains. Yes. So there's there are bits and pieces of things. Obviously, the idea of doppelgangers and weird kind of like disassociative moments where you maybe are outside of your own self like for a while. Psychological fugue states or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, so it, it deals with a lot of the same stuff as Twin Peaks. It has a lot of the same themes. Um, and like I've mentioned, I, I believe from some of the research I've done, he has kind of vaguely alluded to the idea that it could be in the same universe, um, just tangentially happening off to the side while everything is still going on up in Twin Peaks. Oh yeah, some thunder. Hopefully this doesn't sound like bullshit. So, this movie came out. It didn't do great. Um, the reviews were fairly mixed at the time. It didn't have, you know, a huge run in the theaters. It didn't make a ton of money. Um, you know, most critics kind of basically said that it was just nonsensical. It was just a bunch of, you know, scenes put together in montage. Um, but it's it's gotten a good bit of critical praise as time has gone on. It's based off of a book written by Barry Gifford. I believe the book was called um, I think it's I think the book is called Night People, and it's like a collection of short stories. Um, weird Lynch connection. So Barry Gifford also wrote the book that Wild at Heart is based on. He also wrote the book. Perdita Durango, which is a crazy fucking movie. There is a character called Perdita Durango played by Isabella Rossellini in Wild at Heart. Um, and I believe this is when she and Lynch were still married because, and keep that in mind too, that's kind of key to where this movie is going to be going. But that character crosses over into this other Gifford novel and Perdita Durango, the movie that the book was adapted into... That movie stars Rosie Perez and Javier Bardem and James Gandolfini, and that movie is bananas. Like, why that movie does not have huge cult status in America is beyond me. That movie got a VHS release here, but I don't think it's really gone anywhere since then. But if, if a company like Scream Factory um, or Arrow Video were to put that out today, that movie would pretty instantly have a huge cult following. And it's, it's bananas. Like, there are scenes where Javier Bardem is doing a kind of narco-Satanist-esque ceremony, and he's smashing cocaine into his face and ripping the heart out of a corpse while these family members are watching, and, you know, they're all praying, and, uh, screaming Jay Hawkins is like over off to the side, just dressed up like Bone Daddy. Jesus! And the whole time he's just screaming, wah, hey, wah! just imagining those actors like they could kill that role. <laughs> so like that oh, yeah. scene is probably terrifying. And it's it's a it's an insane movie. Like there's lots of really really controversial content in it. It's just really off the wall. Like, at one point, there's an 18-wheeler full of baby fetuses that's crossing the border into Mexico, going to a factory plant kind of place where they're going to be turned into cosmetics. I mean, there's lots of banana stuff in that movie. So, anyway, th that's kind of 
where this story is coming out of, essentially, is Barry Gifford. Um, and he co-wrote the screenplay with Lynch for this movie. It's got a lot of the same level of weirdness that Lynch already has, but he then just kind of brings his dark sensibilities to the movie as well. Lynch has also recently, and I say recently, I mean like 15 years ago, I believe, but recently in context of the movie, stated that while he was writing the screenplay, the O.J. Simpson murder case was going on in the background. And that murder case is explicitly about a guy who, you know, allegedly committed, denied murder, um, and, you know, basically convinced people around him and even himself that he didn't do it. It involved infidelity and lots of other jealousy factors and things that kind of all directly play into this movie. So that was all going on in the background while he was co-writing this screenplay and this movie was being put together. So a lot of that bled over into this movie. Do you also think that when he was writing this movie and directing it that he was the disillusionment with Hollywood in general was starting to bleed in? Yeah, definitely. I've always heard that Mulholland Drive was like his direct response to just the bullshit of Hollywood. And I also have read that this Lost Highway is almost like the first movie of a trilogy with Lost Highway being the first movie, then Mulholland Drive, and then the last movie being Inland Empire in 2006. And that since they all three of them take place in Los Angeles, not that they're like directly tied together, but they're all kind of almost like this this set of movies just critiquing Hollywood in general in really dark ways. Yeah, it's it's a good triptych of movies. Um, that plays on a lot of the themes surrounding Hollywood as a place and an entity and an institution. That's definitely there, you know, although not explicitly textually, it's definitely there subtextually. Overall, you know, this movie was filmed with a really good cast. I, I really dig the cast in this movie. You've got essentially two storylines happening in this movie. We'll go through them a little bit more in detail in a second, but in a nutshell, the first part deals with an avant-garde sax player named Fred Madison, played by Bill Pullman. And right up top, I will say, just before we dig really into the meat of the plot, there are moments where it is a straight-up horror movie, at least in my opinion. The first 30 to 40 minutes are literally a horror movie. The movie is very disjointed, and it's disjointed on purpose, so if you're not a fan of, of kind of surrealist style movies and you you want something more straightforward then this isn't going to be the movie for you uh it's very dreamlike in such a way that like your nightmares and your dreams make absolutely no sense it's kind of in that same way again on purpose there is a plot line that i think once you dig into it and you read at a uh, you read analysis on it, everything it makes a lot of sense and it's a beautifully shot movie I, I personally love it because I am a fan of shit like this where you have to do some digging to get the deeper meanings. But just up top, it is very disjointed. It's not a straightforward plot. When it's creepy, it is real fucking creepy. I wouldn't say that there are full-on jump scares, but there are definitely like quick cuts and things like that that might kind of raise your heart rate suddenly. There were one or two scenes that really got me. Otherwise, it's just a feeling of dread in the same way that you have the feeling of dread when you know you're in a nightmare. Yeah. And Lynch is real good at that. That's that's kind of my take. I think this is a beautiful and fantastic movie. If you feel like your tastes kind of align with mine, 
then I highly recommend it. As far as the creep factor goes, it is very creepy. It'll get under your skin a little bit, but there's no super jump scares, so you don't have to worry about anything like that. Going back to the movie itself, the first part of the story deals with an avant-garde sax player named Fred Madison, um, played by Bill Pullman, and his wife, Renee Madison, played by Patricia Arquette. They start to receive some very creepy VHS tapes at their house that show them in their house. Um, So somebody has been breaking in and kind of voyeuristically taking advantage of their incapacitated states, I guess, because they're always asleep when these videos are occurring. The second part of the story is dealing with a character named Pete Dayton, um, played by Balthazar Getty, and he is a young, um, kind of hotshot kid who is a mechanic. He's he's a greaser. Yeah. (laughs) He's he's totally a greaser. He's a greaser, yeah. Um, And he is kind of the favorite repair man of this character named Mr. Eddie, um, played by the wonderful Robert Loggia. He is incredible in this movie. He's kind of the, like, pet mechanic for Mr. Eddie. So Mr. Eddie brings his cars to him all the time and kind of favors him. And one day he brings by his girlfriend, Alice Wakefield, who is also played by Patricia Arquette, just with different hair from her Renee character. So that's kind of the two halves of the story. One of my favorite little smaller details is Pete's dad is Gary Busey. Oh yeah, yeah, we'll we'll dig into the cast a little <laughs> bit more because the cast of this movie is kind of bananas. The thing that kind of bridges these two is easily the creepiest fucking character in this movie and in a lot of movies. Like, no matter how scary anybody finds, you know, Freddy, Jason, like a lot of the horror icons, fucking Robert Blake as the mystery man is one of the creepiest goddamn movie characters that I've ever seen. And never jumps out, never jump scares, but he is just the makeup on him, his the way he speaks, the smile and expressions he makes on his face. In my mind, see, I don't think this movie is horror, Jason. I sure think this is a horror movie in a lot of ways, and he... He honestly is the primary reason. Yeah, he's definitely the linchpin for the horror side of this movie, for sure. And he's kind of the character that bridges these two halves of the story. And also, if if this does take place in the same universe as Twin Peaks, he is definitely from the Black Lodge, in my mind. Absolutely. Yeah, he's, he's kind of right up there with Bob and Judy as far as Black Lodge entities that have made it into this world to, like, fuck things up and cause chaos this is jumping ahead a little bit but there is a scene where his face is superimposed on someone else's faces and it is very reminiscent of what Ju- the entity of judy does later on in the new series of twin peaks the new season that came out what a year or two yeah. ago and i thought there were direct parallels to those two scenes but i'll, I'll touch on that again when we get to it so this movie deals with a lot of fear in general that we have and these are not like the irrational kinds of fears like we've discussed before going back to our conversation earlier about channel zero my another one of my irrational fears is teeth i hate teeth really teeth child the tooth child bruh like blood guts none of that bothers me but like teeth bone hair nail like all that stuff just grosses me out so hard so anytime somebody like breaks a tooth off or something in a movie i just um, so yeah, the tooth child and that like gets to me. That's 
that's an irrational fear. That's a completely, like, bullshit irrational fear that I have, right? This movie deals with a lot of real, textual, relatable fears. This movie deals with the fear of infidelity. This movie deals with the fear of, like, not being able to satisfy your partner. This movie deals with the fear of essentially losing your life to the point where you completely disassociate and break away from the situation that you're in trying to escape it. Even on the surface level of some of the scenes, it also deals with the fear of your safe space being invaded. Yeah. Um, So this movie deals with a lot of real, relatable elements. So as we kind of discuss this movie you know, keep in mind, no matter how nuts the plot is as we're going through things, everything that's in here as far as, like, the motivation is all something that we can relate to one way or the other. So let's go ahead and get started and talk through the plot in a little more detail. Again, Fred Madison um, is a avant-garde sax player who lives in L.A. Um, He wakes up, and in his apartment, hears the intercom doorbell. And he goes downstairs, turns on the intercom, and a voice just says, Dick Laurent is dead. And, you know, that kind of strikes him as weird, because, okay, who's that? Why do I care? So the next morning, his wife Renee, again played by Patricia Arquette, brunette Patricia Arquette, finds a VHS tape on their porch. And the VHS tape specifically is a very creepy video of the outside of their house. It's very fuzzy, it's black and white, Um, That has that bad 90s camcorder kind of look to it. Yeah, I don't know what it is about that, but that, it it really creeped me out. And that was just the first video. The next video that comes is way creepier. But even just this one that's just literally just watching the outside of the house got me. Yeah, I think this is where the found footage film style to me works. And why so much found footage stuff doesn't. Because this movie explicitly... Like, the tape that they're watching feels wrong. It feels dirty. It feels like you're watching something you shouldn't be watching. Where a lot of found footage, it's just too clean. It's too high def. It's too well lit. It's too well composed. You know, a lot of what makes VHS... A lot of what makes horror from the 80s stand out so strongly in so many people's minds is because... We all were exposed to it via VHS, and it had a graininess to it, and it had tracking lines often where a lot of the gore shots were because people would rewind over those spots a million times to watch them over and over again. You know, there was just a weird creepiness that you don't necessarily get with a lot of modern found footage stuff and even going back and watching some of these older horror movies that used to like really disturb people now and you see them in high def where you can see all the seams and cracks and you know you can smell the spray paint on the set it just loses some of that edge yeah i mean even just the simple act of watching something in vhs because i think i i I watched first time i think i ever watched the exorcist was on vhs and just the fact that it was a lower quality and you know it was more grainy and everything actually made the exorcist a lot creepier than it was when i watched it like a a couple years later on dvd so the first vhs that they find um they bring it inside they pop it in their player and it is just footage of the outside of their house and it's somebody's you know who's kind of walking up their 
sidewalk and approaching the front of the house. And they kind of brush it off. You know, Fred is maybe a little more disturbed by it than Renee, who kind of chalks up to like, well, maybe it's just a realtor, you know, leaving it for like, what fucking realtor? Come on. Like, what? Okay, sure. The movie then cuts to them having sex, um, as couples do. And the scene kind of takes a slight turn because Fred is clearly having some trouble. Um, Whether it's, you know, whether or not he can finish or whether or not he was able to keep it up. I mean, either way, they're having some issues. He's having some performance issues. Renee is clearly just taking it in stride, but she is completely just... She's out of it. She's not caring. She's not in the moment. Um, She kind of gives him a very sad pat on the back like it's okay whatever at that moment the mystery man's face is superimposed over her face which is what you mentioned earlier um and it's you know super creepy yeah it was it was probably i wouldn't say it's a jump scare but it's one of the first like real like whoa that wasn't expecting that moments and again he uses this later on in the newest season of twin peaks a couple times and it was very reminiscent of that he also has a dream of someone in the house and the dream that he has is very similar in look and feel to the second vhs tape um that they receive and the second tape is inside the house at this point oh yeah it's way worse it's way creepier (laughs) so now whoever was recording is now inside of their house It kind of roams through the house until it curves around into their bedroom where you see the two of them asleep in bed. And that's where, like, okay, like, shit's getting weird, shit's getting real, somebody has been in our house. And that is 100% a fear that everybody has of home invasion and somebody invading that safe space. Yeah, that that second tape really got me. It really creeped me out. And just a couple, just a couple notes that I made on top of that in these these first few scenes of this movie. The apartment itself, there's something Lynch can do with just mundane rooms, just everyday rooms, and the way they're furnished, the like the height of the ceiling, the colors that are used. He makes it like super creepy and surreal. Like their their apartment, the way it's furnished is like there's something off. Like this, this inside this apartment is a dream. So so you know why? Why is that? That is David Lynch's house. Is it really? Yes. I had no fucking clue. Really? Yes. That that is David Lynch's weird fucking house, dude. That house is so un. It makes me feel so uneasy when they're like in all, all the scenes that take place in it. Like, and I even mentioned that they're like. There are there's red kind of all over these opening scenes because like you have the red curtains, the bed is red, the roses outside are red. It it focuses on certain red lights like when he's in the club and like the exit sign. And also too, there are three landlines in the apartment, which I thought was maybe one too many. Yeah, uh, I made that notation because I'm an idiot like that. Off topic for a second, something that kind of took me out of the movie, but in a good way because it, it made me kind of laugh was that fucking Pullman sax solo. <laughs> like, I love when it. When it cuts to that solo of him just going batshit on the saxophone was fantastic. I laughed so hard. I love it. So apparent, like, okay, let me let me say this up front. I I've liked jazz my entire life. 
I especially like avant-garde jazz. And I know that, like, 99% of people are going to listen to that and be like, what the fuck is this noise, right? But I fucking love, like, weird avant-garde jazz. Like, it, the stuff that he was playing reminded me so much of, like, John Zorn's projects. Yeah. Um, just stuff like Electric Masada, just the weird cacophonous bullshit. Yeah. Um, it even reminded me, like, a little bit of the band Morphine. Yes, yep. Just the way, like, Morphine with no, no vocals and just, you know, like, another uh, sax, essentially. Um, but apparently... Pullman, like, really learned to play specifically for that solo, so that's actually him. That's not just him, like, blowing into a sax as hard as he can, like, <laughs> just to get the, like, feeling across. So so the thing that, that I enjoyed about it so much, because, like, I dig, I dig avant-garde jazz as well. I, the music itself was fantastic. I love that. It was just the idea of Bill Pullman just going nuts on a saxophone just gave me so much joy in that scene that I had to laugh out loud. Like, I, oh, I, yeah. I loved every second of it. So, circling back around to the house, it's David Lynch's house, which explains why it makes you feel uneasy. Goddamn, yeah, that, I didn't know that. It's, it's like a weird two-story house. The windows are all in really weird places. The windows are all shaped weird. Like, it'll be like one big, long, like, floor-to-ceiling skinny window. And then you'll have, like, one tiny, like, square window that's nine feet above the ground. Like, it, none of it makes sense. The inside is also decorated really strange, like you were saying. I mean, just bullshit, like, it's two big, like, blue and yellow wedge blocks that this fucking TV's sitting on in the corner. So it's just dumb stuff like that. But I will say, like, I love David Lynch. In general, I think David Lynch is very much a style person. But that house is so fucking ugly. <laughs> it's so aggressively 90s in its style. Those kind of khaki clay-colored walls, it just reminds me of, like, a changing room at a JCPenney's in the 90s. Like, so much of that house is just so bad. And the, the interesting thing from, like, a filmmaking standpoint, though, all, and I'm sure, like, he loves this shit in real life, but... All the lighting in that house creates such a, like, weird wasteland of light and shadow. Yeah. And all of the lights seem to be very targeted lights instead of lights that are meant to be kind of effusive and, like, filling a room. Like, all the lights in that house seem to be spotlights. And so it's only meant to light, like, this particular corner of this room and everything else is in darkness. Again, if we're talking about fears, that's another, like, weird fear that a lot of people have is just the dark and being in their house in the dark. And when you're a kid, you're afraid to go get up and pee in the middle of the night because the hallway is dark. This house is the epitome of that. Um, there's literally a hallway that Fred walks down later in the movie that is just blackness. Um, so this movie definitely has like a very strange visual vibe right off the bat and that's very much in contrast to the second part of this movie that's very well lit and bright and shiny and has lots of just kind of glow to it like i know that probably the the way the the house is furnished or the apartment's furnished and the lighting and everything i know it's probably purposeful for the way he like puts together rooms and and just to get the point across with how you, to make you feel but I would not be shocked in the least if, like, 
after they're finished filming this movie, he just goes back to that same exact apartment, keeps it the exact same way uh, Pullman and Patricia Arquette were living in in those scenes, and just, that's his house now. Yeah. So, they find this second videotape. They do go ahead and contact the police, because at this point, like, somebody has been in their house, right? And the the detectives just kind of brush it off because it just seems weird, right? So they're not really a ton of help. I don't know why, because... The fucking videotapes are there, and they're really weird and creepy. The camera angle as well in the videotapes is really disturbing because the camera, and presumably the operator of said camera, are clearly, like, floating above the floor. It's at such a strange, weird angle that's not natural. Like, if it were somebody using the videotape and looking through the eyepiece, you would see it kind of at eye level, and it would maybe bounce a little bit as the person's walking. The camera in the videotapes is way high above the ground and kind of pointing down toward the ground as if it's floating, and the motion is so smooth, so it's just really unnerving and unnatural. So they call the police, the police come by and basically do nothing. And actually during this scene is when that that line yes. like when the policeman ask him, "Hey, do you have do you have a video camera?" and then Patricia Arquette's character says, "No, he actually doesn't like them." And then when the detective like asks why, that's when he says like, "I like to remember things my own way, how I remembered them, not necessarily how they happened." Again, keep that in mind. Also, too, that scene, like, like when they were going through um, that second video and, like, you were saying, it, it was, like, as if somebody's floating above them taking the video. It reminded me of a, a creepy story I heard uh, when I was still living in New Orleans. I can't remember. I think it was the Roosevelt Hotel, like, uh, that famous hotel. Whichever, what's that hotel that's in Lee Circle? I can never remember the actual name of it. I think that might be the Roosevelt. I think it's the Roosevelt. Yeah, I can't remember. I remember there were these there were these people who stayed there one night, and they say that like, oh, this hotel is haunted, whatever. So there was this couple who actually like came to New Orleans to ghost hunt. So they were going all around like all the graveyards and stuff, and like taking ghost tours. And they had disposable cameras, and they were using them up, just taking random photos. And apparently, the last night they were there. Um, they hadn't really gotten any like great evidence or whatever. So they went to sleep and they woke up the next morning to, to like catch their flight or whatever. They said when they got home and they reviewed their last camera, which still had some film left in it, they started finding like as they were going through the last few pictures, they found that the last shots of the camera were of them asleep in the bed in the Roosevelt Hotel, like as if the camera floated right above them, like all the way up to the ceiling and was taking pictures of them. I don't know if that, there was any validity to that story. Maybe not, but just that... Just the idea of it's creepy. Yeah, that story alone is creepy, and that's exactly what this, this second videotape like, reminded me of, of that story. After having the second videotape arrive, and after discussing it with the detectives, they decide to go to a party that's being thrown by one of Renee's friends named Andy, and Andy's kind of a weird guy he's apparently very eccentric he likes having these giant parties and she knows him from the past you know according to her he helped her get this job in quotes right and she doesn't really say more than that but fred is immediately kind of suspicious of their friendship and, you know, rightfully so to a degree, because there's a moment where Andy and Renee are kind of hanging out chit-chatting, and she literally kind of just shoos Fred away and tells him to kind of mind his own business and go dangle. So, while at this party, and this is 
easily the creepiest fucking scene in this movie, to me at least. And this is the one that, like, most people have probably seen. Fred is just hanging out, and he's having a drink at this crowded party. And the mystery man, again played by Robert Blake, approaches Fred kind of out of nowhere. He, like, sees him in the crowd, walks directly towards him. Which, first of all, let's talk about the mystery man again just for a hot second. It's Robert Blake, but his hair is just cut really short to his head. He has his eyebrows shaved off. He's got on basically the same makeup that Renee has, and I don't know that that's, like, pertinent to anything, um, but he's wearing kind of the same level of concealer on his face that gives him a very pale, kind of pallid, gothy corpse look. He's definitely got something on his lips as well, but... His look is just so strange and off-putting, and he never fucking blinks. That entire scene, he never blinks once, and he just has this really strange, giant grin on his face. It's very much in the way that people are scared of things like masks. You know, a lot of what people find creepy about clowns, specifically, is just how their face is another face on top of their physical face. And there's something unsettling about having this, like, happy, haha face on top of your real face, and just how you don't know what the actual expression there is supposed to be. And so his face is very much the same. It's got a very, like, weird, plain, unnatural look to it that makes you uneasy. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. Where was it you think we met? At your house, don't you remember? No, no, I don't. Are you sure? Of course. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. What do you mean you're where right now? At your house. That's fucking crazy, man. Call me. Dial your number. inside my house. You invited me. It is not my custom to go where I'm not wanted. Who are you? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Give me back my phone.
It's been a pleasure talking to you. God, it's so Damn, creepy. It's so creepy. <laughs> and you don't really know like what his purpose is there at the party. You don't know like why he approached Fred. It's just a strange fucking interaction. And we've all like had moments like that where you'll be like at a bar or a party and somebody will come up to you like thinking you're somebody that they know and they'll kind of talk to you and they'll maybe be like a little bit weird about like are you sure are you telling me the truth and like it just seems weird because you know yes like i'm telling the fucking truth you know so it's just one of those weird moments as someone with with some social anxiety that is like a nightmare scenario for me so like totally this scene really fucking got me bad because that's exactly what it was like this is like if i was at a party and really one of the only people i knew was like my wife or maybe a couple friends and then i went to like went off to the side either to another room or to get a drink or whatever and then this fucking asshole approaches me it's a nightmare scenario if you ever get a chance look up the creepypasta have you seen this man yeah and it's this idea that like a bunch of people have had the same dream of seeing the same guy and they they make drawings of him and it's like just this weird like Slicked back hair, weird looking expression, little gnome like looking guy, and that's kind of what the mystery man is is like. Um, actually, something I wanted to ask you, Mansfield, is this Robert Blake's last movie role? So, and I was going to talk about that in a little bit. Yes, this is his last movie appearance. What Robert Blake is most well f- known for now is not this movie. It's not In Cold Blood. It's not any of the other stuff that he did years ago. Uh, he's most well known because he recently was, you know, acquitted of his wife's murder. Oh shit, I didn't know that. (laughs) So, that's one of the other interesting layers to this movie is a couple years ago he, you know, had his trial and I believe he was acquitted. Um, but it was kind of in the same way that, you know, the OJ trial was. It was kind of a weird mess and all signs pointed to like, yep he did it isn't it ironic oh yeah so and this again this was just a few years ago so this was like a decade after this movie came out but yeah this was his last like on-screen appearance um this is this movie is the last on-screen appearance for several people including two characters we're going to get to a little bit later that i want to bring up when we get to that point god that that just adds a whole nother creepy layer to this movie totally just like the, the like what happens and where this movie goes just the fact that robert blake like it's eerily similar to what, like, I guess happened with him. Yeah, totally. I, just in general, like, got y'all, audience, y'all, never trust anybody that has a widow's peak. <laughs> and, and or, like, no eyebrows, right? Just don't, don't do it. <laughs> Are you and, telling them not to trust cancer patients? No, that's different. That's like... I know, I'm just being an asshole. Yeah, that's, that's different. <laughs> like, somebody who purposely shaves their eyebrows year-round, like, for shits, like, nah, don't don't stay away from them um kind of on the flip side too andy um the friend whose party that they're at he just has the worst like grease ball kind of look and feel to him and i mean it comes out a little bit later but like he's definitely involved in porn and he's just got that 90s like kind of gross slick back hair wearing lots of gold chains and clothes that are way too fucking big and baggy because everybody in the 90s wore their clothes that way. But he's also got one of those little, like, John Waters pencil mustaches. And same thing, like, unless it's fucking John Waters, don't trust anybody with a pencil mustache. You can trust John Waters. John Waters is a national treasure. Don't trust anybody else with a pencil mustache. And Andy would have, he would have fit right in in Boogie Nights. 
Totally. And and two, like, all the people that were at his party, like, kind of cracked me up. Because that totally seems like the kind of crowd that Lynch would probably hang out with in real life as well. But, like, secretly hate them and, like, detest yeah, them as people. Totally. Yeah. It's just, like, a weird, eclectic collection of people that are at this party. While they're at the party, um, Fred has this confrontation with the mystery man. From there, Fred kind of talks to Andy again. And asks, like, hey, who the fuck is that weird guy that just came up and talked to me? And Andy then says, oh, I, I'm not sure who that is, but I know he's a friend of Dick Laurent's. And at that moment, Fred's like, Dick Laurent is dead. And Andy says, no, he's not. And how the fuck do you know Dick Laurent, right? Andy gets weirdly confrontational. Like, he's just like, yeah, like, how dare you, basically? But, like, also kind of, like, is he is he saying the the truth? Like, is there something I don't know? Yeah. And he gets, like, confrontational. Well, again, back to, like, social anxiety fears. Let's flip that around, and let's say that you're having a party at your house, and somebody who's, like, married to somebody that you used to be friends with randomly comes up to you and says, Hey, who's this other person at this party? Oh, I don't know, but he's... Yeah, he's he's a friend of like this other person that I know, and it's like, oh, you know that that person's dead, right? Mansfield is dead, <laughs> and so like that that's also like weird. You just be like, no, fuck off. Like, what are you talking about? That per- you're the weird one. Get the fuck out of here, right? Again, Lynch is such a master at like nightmare nonsensical scenarios that are just deeper anxieties and fears you have, and just there to like make you uneasy. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest thing is just the sense of, like, unease and anxiety in this movie is overwhelming. And I get, like, that might be a a lot of the reason why people, like, don't click with Lynch stuff because it does make them feel uneasy the entire time you're watching it. Whether it's something that's, like, explicitly horrific, like this scene that we just finished talking about, or just stuff that's, like, bizarrely surreal and, like, way too glossy and happy, but, like, is off in a weird way. Like, that stuff all makes people feel really uneasy. And and we've used uneasiness to describe the other movies that we've already covered, but this is a different type of uneasiness. Like, this is different than Black Coat's Daughter slash kind of, like, The Shining sort of uneasiness. This is different than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uneasiness. This is straight-up surreal nightmare dream logic uneasiness. That's even more disjointed than than Black Coat's daughter was, than It Follows was. Just it it is Lynch Lynch uneasiness is its own category, in my opinion. Yeah. So Fred and Renee kind of rush home. You know, Fred kind of insists that they go ahead and leave. Once they get home, this is the moment that I mentioned earlier, where Fred essentially gets entranced by something down a dark hallway in their house. And this hallway is like complete and utter blackness. There's just something kind of way that like that darkness engulfs him that's absolute and it's unnatural and it's in their house, you know, which is, it's disturbing. Um, There's a mirror at the end of the hallway that we see him staring into. And mirrors, like, already also have lots of kind of unnerving properties once you actually think about it. Mirrors, as a thing, are very creepy, and how light works with them and the science behind them is just very interesting, but especially if you kind of put a lot of the supernatural connotation onto mirrors that people have had over the centuries. Mirrors are very kind of weird, and if we're talking about a movie with doppelgangers potentially or disassociative moments, a mirror is very much a catalyst for, you know, these kind of things. 
At this point, he walks back from the darkness in the hallway. And I think this is the point where he has kind of fundamentally changed. Um, He's dressed slightly differently. His hair is slicked back. From this point, you know, it cuts to the next morning. Um, So he wakes up the next morning, and again, he's dressed differently than he has been. His hair is slicked back. Uh, Another scene that, that I wanted to bring up, which I can't remember, was it in this sequence, or was it a little bit earlier on, where he's in the club playing saxophone again and he sees Patricia Arquette uh Renee being let off by Andy yeah let's circle back around on that I forgot about that part so toward the very beginning you know he's gonna go play a gig he asks her hey are you coming and she says no I'm just gonna stay at home and read and he kind of scoffs at that a little bit oh yeah that's really early yeah that's really early in the morning in the in the movie I forgot but it it cuts to him playing in the club. He's he like kind of has a flashback moment where he remembers seeing her there in the background. Um, so clearly she kind of lied to him and said like, "Yo, I'm not going." Jk, I am. So you know there was also that kind of weird moment of mistrust between the two of them, and he kind of feels like something's up. And once he's done. There's another scene where he goes into the area behind the stage and uses a payphone to try to call her, and nobody answers. So he's definitely getting some infidelity vibes this whole time. Let's cut back to where we were. So the next day, after kind of going into the darkness of the hallway and staring in the mirror, he wakes up the next day. He looks very different. He's acting slightly different. At this point, there is another VHS tape in the little manila envelope but this one is not on their doorstep like the first two this one is just sitting in the house it's sitting on a little table by the phone he picks this one up he kind of calls to renee who doesn't answer he puts the tape in and starts watching it and it shows some of the same stuff that we'd seen the previous tapes of the outside of the house the inside of the house and then it cuts to these flashes of him on the floor beside the bed just screaming in anger and in agony, covered in blood, and Renee's dismembered body all over the ground and all over the bed. And it's fucking horrific. Yeah. Um, there, There is a split moment where it, like, flashes really quick, and you can see, like, a split second of the scene without all the, like, haze and, like, static of the VHS, and it's brutally awful yeah this is the most jump scary moment of the entire movie um this got me pretty bad i was not expecting it like i was expecting something really creepy just because the the from the first tape to the second tape was a massive jump in the creep factor so i expected this one to be even worse but they cranked it to 11 and it's 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 not just like one jump scare either or like one scare or one horrific image. It is a f- like a full minute or two of just from the 41 or like 40 minute mark to like the 42, 43 minute mark, just flashes of that over and over again. And it's just done in such a horrific way. From here, he kind of has a moment of headache that cuts to like a sudden flash and... He is now being interrogated in the house by the two detectives from earlier. So all of a sudden, it just cuts from this VHS tape to boom. Now he's being literally punched in the face by these detectives, and they're questioning him about the murder. And from there, it kind of moves 
pretty quick. You know, he, you see him in jail, essentially. Um, apparently there was some courtroom stuff that all got trimmed from the final cut of this movie, which fine like it's not necessary to the story yeah you just you just hear the judge say like sentenced to death by electric chair yeah and then it shows him being led into the death row basically and we get a henry rollins sighting as one of the prison guards yeah in general there's lots of you know that guy character actors uh, when I say that guy, it's like, you know, oh yeah, that's, it's that guy. There's lots of those kind of character actors in this movie. Um, but Henry Rollins, I mean, anybody that knows, you know, music is aware of Henry Rollins. Speaking of which, like, his role in this is very minimal. I mean, he has, like, two lines in the whole fucking movie, and he's just this, like, throwaway character. I listened to an episode of his podcast called Henry and Heidi, and it was an episode about this movie um, where the two of them just kind of talk about it. It's mostly him talking about David Lynch, not necessarily the movie per se, but it's more just like his relationship with David Lynch and how they became friends working on this and how they're still friends to this day. But there were a couple of tidbits that cracked me the fuck up when he was talking about them making the movie. First of all, David Lynch loves music. I mean, that's clear from, like, any of David Lynch's stuff. David Lynch is a music person. I love the soundtracks for all of his projects. The thing that, like, kind of surprises me, but I also appreciate is as weird and as he acts and his movies are, he listen. he's not super eclectic with his, his music choices. Like, the people he listens to are eclectic, but they're also mainstream. Like, he has Nine Inch Nails in a lot of his stuff, and he likes Nine Inch Nails. Uh, in this movie specifically, there's Marilyn Manson, there's Ramstein, like it's all these kind of well-known artists, but they're still eclectic for the type of music they make. So it's not like, oh, I I decided to do uh, '80s uh, folk out of the Netherlands. Like that's what you kind yeah. of would expect from him, but it's not. Yeah, it's not all the banana stuff that you would necessarily think, and all that metal that you just mentioned. That's all stuff that's kind of just on this soundtrack specifically um i mean there is some stuff in wild at heart too but on oh, and nine inch nails comes back in new twin peaks as well quite a bit yeah um he's very much a fan of trent Reznor and nine inch nails and he was listening to all of that pretty heavily when this movie was being made but they would have music breaks in between takes right so they would shoot Take a break. All right, let's, you know, listen to music. It's time for a music break. <laughs> I love you. I love your David Lynch. Henry Rollins was saying that they had these giant, huge, like, concert hall monitors that they would just blast fucking music through to the point where, like, it was really deafening and it, like, physically, like, impacted you after a while of being around like it just made you nauseated because it was so loud and it was all just stuff that ended up kind of on the soundtrack it was just you know all right time for a music break blast noise for five minutes and then he comes over and just yells at somebody i like these guys a lot their name is Ramstein, and I think they're real neato. What I would give to go back and be on that set when that was happening. Oh, yeah. Apparently, too, there was a moment where he stepped over to Henry Rollins to, like, give him a bit of direction, but was just casually talking to him through, like, a megaphone. But it was, like, a megaphone set to, like, the lowest <laughs> volume setting. <laughs> 
And he just walked over and, you know, casually gave him the direction. And Harry was just like, what? Why are you talking to me through the megaphone? And Lynch just replies, because I think it sounds cool. <laughs> isn't, doesn't he do, like, on his director commentary, isn't his director commentary stuff, like, batshit? Like, instead of actually explaining scenes, he's, like, talking about how he, like, went to this diner in Seattle and, like, got the best cup of coffee he ever had in his life. And Yeah, his, don't look for answers in any of his director's commentaries, at least in my opinion. I've, I've listened to pretty much all of them, and they're all just Lynch being Lynch. So, yeah, Henry Rollins, like, had a very fun experience. He enjoyed it. But the thing that I found interesting was, you know, he was talking about how they would blast all this fucking music in between the takes. And it was all really kind of weirdly aggressive music that, like, after a while, the physical sensation of being near that much noise and being around speakers that heavy duty, it does affect your, like physical performance and he was saying that after a whole day of that they all just got to the point where they were just slump shouldered and like just aggravated and like anxious and not happy but you see that then in their performances there's like a sense of like weird detachment and psychological unease amongst like the actors because they were being conditioned all day and whether lynch like did that on purpose which i assume he did that wasn't just like I'm weird and eccentric and I like blasting loud music. You know, there was a purpose behind that that affected their performances. Um, so that's that little story cracked me the hell up when I heard it. Like I mentioned, a lot of the prison and trial scenes were cut, which they're not super important. Um, the important thing is that while Fred is in his cell one night, this blue light starts to flash and we start to have all this kind of electricity lightning stuff going on in his cell and he starts freaking the fuck out and up to this point there have been moments where he kind of has a headache or he maybe has a nosebleed now he is like having a full-on huge like headache attack and he's having all these visions of the mystery man there's also this really cool image of this cabin that's out, like, in the desert. And the cabin, it starts as this giant explosion with all of this smoke. And it all then reverses into the cabin. So you're seeing this cabin explode, but in reverse. And that's one of the most solid, just interesting pieces of, you know, visual in this movie. is just seeing that thing explode. Yeah, I, li I loved that little vision that he had. So this is the moment where Fred has a very explicit disassociative moment that becomes textual, it becomes manifest. Disassociative moments like this are not necessarily like a fear in and of themselves, but it's like, it's rooted in fear. You know, when you know you've done something bad, Especially, like, when you're a kid and you're, like, learning to take responsibility for things that you do and, you know, kind of realize the consequences of your actions. Um, you know, you feel guilty about what you've done and, you know, you have all these thoughts where you just wish that you could, like, step outside of yourself in that moment and go live a different life in a different place and, like, possibly even, like, in a different time. You know, you just have those moments where you just kind of wonder, like, am I really here right now? If I'm here, like, where else could I be? If I'm not here, like, where am I? What could I be doing right now if I were, like, in a different position? It's, it's like, a very interesting and common coping mechanism 
But, you know, this is ramped up to the point where, like, it becomes literal. Speaking of, like, of depression and anxiety, when I've had panic attacks in the past, now, granted, not to this level, but that whole idea of, like, envisioning myself as a completely different person, not just, like, me in another situation, but literally as a completely different person, there is a lot of truth to that. This is another reason why this movie also got under my skin was because it plays on on that feeling you get when you have a panic attack fred has his headaches he's having these visions of the mystery man the exploding cabin we see the highway and this is the same kind of highway that we see at the beginning of the movie where there's just kind of a, a vague light like headlights going down it very fast and you just see the lines separating the two different lanes which, haha, two lanes, and they're separated by a thin line. Lol, lol. <laughs> also, too, in that, that opening scene where, where it's like the cre- opening credits, I love that David Bowie song. What is it? I'm Deranged? Yeah. Was, is that the song that's playing in the opening? Yeah. yeah, the soundtrack in this movie in general is fantastic. And this is, um, this is a soundtrack that I actually owned before I'd even seen this movie. Because this movie, like, wasn't available on DVD until... Probably 2007, 8. I mean, it was a while before they put this on DVD. Um, so I didn't get around to watching it probably until then. Um, but the soundtrack of this movie is great. I mean, it's got pumpkins and Nine Inch Nails and all kinds of good stuff. So the other thing, while this while it's traveling down the Lost Highway, it kind of zooms right up to this other character and then screeches to a halt right in front of him. So we cut to the next day, and there's a prison guard who's going around doing the cell check, and he kind of freaks out, and he goes and talks to the warden, and brings him there and basically says, yo, uh, this guy Fred, who was on death row for murdering his wife, he's not in his cell anymore, but this guy Pete Dayton is. So they kind of uneasily, like, let him out, because it's clearly not the same person and his, his parents pick him up and uh like i mentioned earlier gary Busey is his his dad and um his mother's lucy butler yeah um lucy butler's done like a lot of tv stuff over the years then obviously gary Busey is you know the wild man surprisingly normal in this movie although he does wear a leather jacket and <laughs> has like sunglasses on he looks like a tough guy yeah it, it cracks me the fuck up because like the parents are essentially like the walmart brand of biker people it kind of cracks me that like you never actually see them on motorcycles you see pete on a motorcycle later but like they just drive around in a station wagon and wear like bad 90s denim jeans and leather jackets and like sunglasses when they first walk into the prison office they're like wearing their leather jackets and matching and like holding hands and wearing sunglasses inside and like take off their sunglasses together yeah for the few scenes they're in they're they're sweet like they're sweet parents like they obviously bend over backwards to like be cool with pete and they're kind of delightful even though they're not in this movie that much just the little bits that they are they're they're pretty delightful so they take pete home and he kind of has a slight period of like getting over his trauma you know because like how the fuck did all this happen right even though he's like back at home they had these two detectives following him because the whole situation at the prison was obviously like really strange so they're at least keeping tabs on him that way and and these two detectives are different than the other two detectives that were 
with Fred. Yes. These are these are two different detectives. Later, his friends and his girlfriend show up at at uh, Gary Busey and Lucy's house. I, I wrote down, who the fuck are these 1950s greasers listening to Smashing Pumpkins? <laughs> the friends are really strange because... When they first show up, they look like every alt-rock band from the late 90s. They just all have, like, big, oversized leather jackets on and, like, spiked up hair. Like, they look like the offspring had a love child with, like, third eye blind. (laughs) That's a good way of describing them. So they're just, like, hella 90s. They go out to this club... And the club, like, the, he's dancing with his girlfriend while they're playing, you know, Smashing Pumpkins in the background, which, all of that just seems, like, so strange, like, looking back at it now, right? Like, I love Smashing Pumpkins, I just saw them live, but it's just so weird to, like, look at it in context of the time and the situation that they're in. And that was, like, peak Smashing Pumpkins as well, but, like, yeah. even peak Smashing Pumpkins, I wouldn't dance to, I would just listen to it. Yeah, I wouldn't, like, slow dance to my, you know, with my girlfriend to it at, like, a bowling alley like they're doing. Yeah. Also, too, yeah, to your point earlier, he, uh, Pete, the character that Bill Pullman has inextricably turned into, he's very much a greaser character in the very, you know, basic essence of that stereotype. But to me, in my head, this is who James Hurley from Twin Peaks, sees himself as. So I'm so fucking happy you brought this up because I literally just wrote, I wrote that in my notes when I watched this like a week ago. I literally wrote, Pete is just who James Hurley wishes he was. Yes. Like when James (laughs) Hurley thinks of like himself, this is who he pictures, right? Anyway. So to to set up to like this, this next part of the movie, because it's almost it's almost the point where it's like a, a second movie within a movie. Yeah, and I mean it's it's like I mentioned earlier, it's tonally completely different. Yeah, like this is like the most tonal whiplash I think I've had in most any movie because the first forty minutes, everything we talked about so far, leading up to the prison soon, it's a horror movie. It is in a my straight opinion. up horror movie for the first 40, 45 minutes of the movie. When it cuts to the second half, it's just the most made-for-TV, neo-noir, everything is filmed with, like, a little bit of gauze and glow to it. It's just tonally a completely different movie altogether. Everyone is acting way too cool and kind of over the top a little bit, like, where where it's almost bending over backwards to be noir. Way too cool, but in that surrealist way where... Yes, yes. Everybody still has a slight sense of unease to them like it's it's like watching those casper kelly tim and eric kind of things where it's like a commercial from the 90s that feels completely normal until it goes slightly to the left and things start to become surrealist and weird and again i think lynch is one of the only few people could who could have pulled this off because while it does tonally shift so drastically in the background there like like with a lot of Lynch's work you just know that there's this I don't know if it's an entity or this dark force that still slightly distorts everything yeah but even as goofy as some of these next scenes are there's still that underbelly of darkness to it yeah just kind of like in kind of like in Twin Peaks like there's always that dark side of every town there's always a dark side to everything 
later on, I'm not sure if it's like later in the week or, you know, a few days later, um, Pete returns to his job. Um, he works at a garage, a car repair garage. And um, this is where the other like piece of interesting casting comes in to circle back around to people whose last performances were in this movie. His boss is Richard Pryor. Yeah. And this was Richard Pryor like deep into his MS. So it's very different seeing him in a wheelchair, you know, struggling with MS at this point. You know, a lot of people had just not seen him in years and seen like where he was at that point in his life. But it was very interesting to see that he was cast in this movie. And I mean, it's a little bit of stunt casting to put someone like Richard Pryor in a very small role in a very odd movie like this, right? But it brings a lot of interesting flavor to the movie that I like. You know, it's a lot like Billy Ray Cyrus showing up in Mulholland Drive. Yeah. You know, it's just like, wait, what? Why is this person in here? And there's no real purpose to it other than David Lynch probably fucking loves Richard Pryor and just yeah. asks him, like, yo, be in this movie. And the character of Arnie that Richard Pryor plays, like, you can tell just even in the few scenes he's in, like, it's very well established that, like, he's a pretty cool boss who cares about all of his employees, yeah. especially Pete. Very passionate about his his work, but also just genuinely interested in Pete's life and making sure he's doing okay. Almost like a, like, you could tell he's almost like a mentor to Pete and kind of watches over him a little bit. Um, and these are just like things you can draw off of the very few scenes and very little he's in this kind of like with uh, Pete's family or his parents that like the you can draw a lot from just a little bit of acting that they've done. Um, but yeah, it was it was a little sad, but it was also very enjoyable to see Richard Pryor because you can tell like this is the end of his days. Yeah, like he's at the end of his rope in this movie, but he's still at least in, through the character. He's very he's a very bright part of this movie. It, it was nice to see him. Also, Jack Nance is working in this. Uh, yeah, in, in this this uh, garage, which I thought was great because it, it's always. I always love seeing him after uh, after watching Twin Peaks. Yeah, and that was that was the other person I was going to bring up. He's also just one of the mechanics at this garage, and he's kind of there in the background and has a couple of lines. And this was also um, Nance's last performance. I think he died maybe a month before. I think he did. He died. Oh shit! Like I'm looking at it on his Wikipedia right now. He actually died on my birthday. Shit. <laughs> Yeah, he died December 30th, 1996. 96 isn't my birthday, but that's like the day of my birthday. And apparently he died under mysterious circumstances. Um, he had a bruise under his eye. He talked about a brawl at a donut shop on the day before. And he kind of complained about having a headache. And apparently he had a subdural hematoma. Mm. Um, that's rough. Yeah, that, that'll do it. Well, you can tell Lynch just loves him as well as their friends like yeah. what he was he was a racer head yeah he was in dune he was in wild at heart uh he was in this movie he's he was in twin peaks like yeah that it's cool that he was in this movie yeah this was his last movie um as well as that of um richard Pryor, and then you know obviously we mentioned robert blake earlier but that was more just he got out of acting at the garage um this character shows up named mr eddie who is kind of this rich guy that we can tell there's something maybe more going on with. And he brings his cars by because he specifically likes Pete. Um, so Pete's the guy that does all of his mechanic work. Again, you can tell like something's up with him, but you don't know exactly what. But this character is played by Robert fucking Logia. 
and he's great. Oddly enough, too, he and Bill Pullman were in Independence Day the year before Yes, they this. were. <laughs> Apparently, while they were filming Independence Day, Pullman was reading the script for Lost Highway and was like, oh yeah, there's this interesting character, Robert, you should uh, maybe see about doing this. Now, what's fun is Robert Loggia originally was going to... He was auditioning to play Frank Booth in Blue Velvet. Oh, shit. And he showed up to audition after the role had already been given to uh, Dennis Hopper, right? So the role had already been cast, but he was already there, and, like, nobody came out to just tell him, like, yo, the role's already cast. They didn't call him before, and so he was just waiting, waiting, waiting forever. And then finally somebody comes out and tells him the situation, and he flipped the fuck out and, like, had a huge screaming, cursing argument and just, like, caused a giant scene, right? So, flash forward to, like, ten years later, and Bill Pullman's like, yo, you should uh try out for this role in this David Lynch movie, and he's just like, nah, I'm not gonna do that because I had a, did a bad thing with them years ago, and there's no way they're gonna, like, let me back. But apparently, uh, Lynch called him specifically and said, hey, I have a role for you. And so he took it from there. So, yeah, Robert Loggia's great. I love that dude. Um, and this character is so fucking great for him because this character is just slimy and loud and crass and just dangerous. To me, he represents like the end of like the 1950s era gangster. Like this is like totally he's one of the last remaining few left. It's the 90s. Like that type of organized crime is not really working anymore, but he's still holding on to it. This moment that we're about to discuss perfectly ties into that so he he tells pete like hey come come take a drive with me you know let's go drive around so pete gets in the car along with the two bodyguards that are with mr eddie and they take a drive on mulholland drive oh i didn't even realize that (laughs) yep and while they're driving you know pete you know hops out real quick adjusts something on the engine that he kind of hears continue to drive some more but eventually uh mr eddie starts getting tailgated by this dude and he just like slams on his brakes after the guy or the guy passes him and he just like catches up and starts like ramming into him after the guy gives him the finger passing him and runs the guy off the road drags him out of the car pistol whips the shit out of him and is just screaming like you motherfucker here's the goddamn driver's manual learn this shit so like that moment is kind of it's horrific violence but it's played for comedy which is kind of strange tonally compared to what the rest of this movie's been but it does crack me up because like if all gangsters just would reinforce social rules and like basic traffic law and stuff like that instead of you know trafficking and drugs and sex and everything else life would be a way better place if the person who like occasionally cuts in line at the supermarket or you know somebody that's just like breaking a basic traffic law like you know easing through a stop sign if some gangster just comes around the corner of the baseball bat and kneecaps him is like you dumb motherfucker <laughs> yeah the, in a way this is like what my subconscious wishes i could do and get away with like when that totally. kind of shit happens on the road like that uh he's almost like a representation of road rage for everybody this part almost reminded me too of a you know a much worse movie than this one, but if you've ever seen Shoot 'Em Up, I think there's a part in Shoot 'Em Up where like the main character gets all pissed off because uh, someone doesn't use the blinker, and he goes on this gigantic rant about using your blinker and being polite to everyone else on the road with you, and it was kind of reminiscent of that. But 
that movie is way worse than than this one. <laughs> so once they get back to the garage, Pete is clearly just, you know, like, oh god, what the fuck did I just step into? Again, like, Mr. Eddie's just, you know, blowing it off, eh, whatever, it happens. Slips him, like, a, slips him a ton of money as a yeah. tip, and yeah. But the weird thing is he, like, pulls out a VHS tape, which again, there's, like, the tapes again. Um, he, like, pulls it out of the glove box and is just like, like, porno! And it's just like, wait, what? You're, like, trying to tip him with, like, a porn VHS? Like, what a weird fucking thing, right? It's like an unmarked VHS, no <laughs> box. And, of course, he's just like, uh, no thanks, I'm I'm good. Mr. Eddie is dropping off his car at the garage. We see the same two detectives that have been kind of keeping an eye on Pete this whole time. They see Mr. Eddie with his car. And one of them's like, holy shit, you know who that is? And he's like, oh, no, who? He's like, oh, that's Dick Laurent. So this is now the first time that we're kind of hearing that name Dick Laurent come up in both storylines, right? So now we know Mr. Eddie is this Dick Laurent character that supposedly, like, is dead at the beginning of the movie. That Andy then told him at the party, no, he's not dead. Anyway, um, he gets out of the car. We see them back at home later. There is another moment where Pete, stares into a mirror in the darkness again just like we kind of saw fred doing earlier in the movie so from there the next day mr eddie comes back to the garage and this time he has his mistress with him um who is named alice and alice like i mentioned earlier is also just patricia arquette but this time she is blonde so she goes from being brunette with kind of this Betty Page haircut with the bangs to being just full blonde 50s bombshell. She's with him. We get this awesome Lou Reed cover of the Drifters, this magic moment. Yeah. <laughs> as she's getting out of the car in slow-mo and everybody in the mechanic's garage is staring at her. It's very much a, like, windy peppercorn in the the Sandlot kind of moment where everybody's just like, Mr. Eddie drops off his Cadillac for Pete to repair. And, you know, everybody's kind of entranced by Alice and she leaves just as mysteriously as she appeared. At one point, aren't they listening to the radio and you hear that saxophone solo that is either the same exact one or similar to one that uh, Pullman, uh, that Fred was playing in the beginning of the movie. And he starts getting, like, a headache and a nosebleed, and he tells them to, like, turn off the radio or something? Yes, it was just the moment before this. Um, and that's, it is the exact same sax solo. This scene, too, when Alice shows up, is another good example that kind of hits on Bill Pullman's earlier statement about, you know, I choose to remember things the way I want to remember them, not necessarily the way they happened, right? So this scene is kind of the same idea, just the way that, Alice appears so mysteriously and it's in slow motion with the music going. Like, you can tell that this is like Pete's inner dialogue and in his head rolling the soundtrack and seeing everything in this kind of glittery, glossy slow mo. So, anyway, he's definitely entranced by Alice. She comes to the garage later, but she's by herself this time. And she specifically asks Pete to go out with her. They kind of start to have an affair, right? So they start meeting up at different hotels and motels around and 
have sex and bang just kind of on and off. Every sex scene with them is very different from the one that we see earlier in the movie between Renee and Fred because these are very like intense and passionate. There's just more going on than kind of the sad lovemaking moment that we see earlier in the movie. At one point she does mention that you know, she's afraid that Mr. Eddie, like, knows who they are specifically. She kind of starts getting to be a little off at that point. Like, this is kind of where you start to see a change in her, where all of a sudden it goes from lovey-dovey, you know, young romance to, hey, um, we need to get the fuck out of here. I feel like something's about to happen. Um, we should go rob my friend and just skip town. Like, that'll be so cool, right? So you're starting to see, like, this weird behavior from her. And, you know, the girlfriend finds out she breaks up with him. And it's very dramatic, and they're yelling and screaming on the front lawn of the parents' house. And there's, like, a strange phone call from Mr. Eddie. You know, Mr. Eddie does know about the two of them. And he is sitting in the darkness, just grinning ear to ear. And... And very much the like, yeah, what you been up to? I haven't seen you lately. How are things going? What have you been doing after work? Like, he's he's definitely probing, looking for something. He finally is like, hey, let me let a friend talk to you. And he hands the phone over, and we see it's once again the mystery man. God, every scene he's in is fucking creepy. This is another really creepy scene. Yeah, and he basically just, like, says, like, do you know who you're fucking with, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But he basically just, like, scares the shit out of Pete to the point where Pete, like, says, okay, yeah, Alice, you're right, like, we need to get the fuck out of here. Oh, and at one point the mystery man says also to Pete, like, does he say we've spoken somewhere? Or we've seen, you? He, he says it again, like, but I think he says. Yeah, he's, it's like a variation. He says, like, you know, we've met before. Yeah, yeah. You know who this is talking to you right now. So he definitely, like, gets freaked out at that point, And he agrees to go along with Alice's plan to go rob her friend and, you know, basically just skip town. This is kind of where, like, things start to fall apart. And this is where, too, you can't really... I don't think you're ever going to be able to, like, make sense of the plot of this movie. Because every time where you think, oh, well, this is clearly this part, and this is clearly this part, and they're separated, things bleed together. And things cross over, and things overlap in ways that you can't reconcile and make sense of. So, this is kind of where everything starts to become really surreal... I say that, like, this whole movie's been surreal so far, but, like, this is where things start to really not make a lot of sense, right? The last time that we see Pete and Alice having sex in a motel, she turns back into Renee. There's a moment where, like, her hair turns back to brunette, and it doesn't really come back up again. So, like, we're starting to see these cracks where the Pete and Fred lives are starting to cross over, and that whole disassociative fantasy that's in Fred's head is starting to collapse, right? So this, like, fantasy life and this escapism that he's created is starting to fall apart. So Alice and Pete go to her friend's house, and she's kind of dropped subtle hints about, like, this is my friend, he likes to party, he likes to have girls over, so he always has lots of cash on hand, he's kind of eccentric and kind of weird. So they get to the house, and we know, the audience knows, this is the house that they were having the party at earlier, Andy's house. 
right? So her friend is Andy. And there, there's a scene, too, where, like, I think Pete asks her, like, how do you know Andy? And there's, like, a flashback to her uh, basically being invited to a building of some kind. I got the impression, yeah, when she's kind of explaining the backstory of, like, how do you know Andy? How did you get into this whole thing? She's basically given the backstory of how she got tied up with Mr. Eddie slash Dick Laurent. And I got the impression that it was his house that she's at. But basically, she gets invited over to audition for a porn. They kind of at gunpoint, like, make her strip in front of Mr. Eddie. And that's kind of how she gets tied up into this whole porn industry thing that Andy and Mr. Eddie are both involved with. So that also kind of connects the dots back to the moment where Renee earlier in the movie at the party says like oh yeah he just helped me get a job right so there's some crossover there that you're not quite sure like how that fits necessarily but Pete shows up at the house Alice got there before him he's kind of walking into the house that seems empty there's a projector playing on the wall that's playing the porno that Alice did from earlier and you kind of see bits and pieces of clothing on the floor and you see her purse and as he's kind of nosing around, he finds a picture in a frame that's sitting on a table. And it's a picture of Mr. Eddie and Renee, brunette, and then Alice, blonde, and Andy. So now we kind of wonder, like, wait, what the fuck? Are they different people? Are they twins? Are they different people? But they're both in this photo together. And he continues to kind of nose around, and Andy wanders downstairs, and Pete's kind of hiding behind the bar. Andy comes up to the bar to make a drink, and Pete, like, hops around the front of the bar and just clocks him on the head with, like, a weird statue thing that's sitting there. Um, so at that point, you know, they think Andy's dead. He's laying on the floor, kind of in a pool of blood with his head busted open, and so they start kind of going at it so alice goes through his pockets they grab a bunch of cash she's clearly walking around the house just stealing other random things so it's definitely and she's got kind of a glee to her so there's more going on than just hey let's steal some money from this guy so we can skip town there seems to be like an element of revenge here slightly yeah and at this point too you can tell the mannerism that patricia arquette is playing with alice in these scenes is very much of the of that she's using everybody including pete for something you don't know what it is but she's using everyone especially pete in one of the like best fucked up movie deaths ever andy does pop back up they didn't quite kill him i jumped a little because like he pops up screams and like just goes for the attack all of a sudden and it it, it, that scared me a bit (laughs) yeah he like runs right at pete who kind of grabs him and like falls with his body weight and throws Andy across the room and you just kind of hear this like thud smash crash and it cuts over and you see that Andy basically sailed face first through the room and into the corner of a glass coffee table and so the glass top of this coffee table is just like sliced and embedded into his forehead it's gross but it's pretty solid it's a pretty solid movie kill (laughs) yeah it's it's like gnarly as hell but it's also just like that would never fucking happen like no not at all (laughs) that glass top would just shatter right away 
Um, but it's pretty metal, like, seeing someone with, like, the entire corner of a coffee table in their head. The detectives show up at uh, Andy's house are like, what the fuck happened when they're looking at his body? The scene makes a point to go over to that, that picture we saw where it was Alice and Renee in the same picture. Well, this time, it's not both of them in the picture. And it's just, uh, I think it was just Renee in the picture. I yes. Can't yeah, it's just Renee in the picture now. There's no Alice. The brunette is still in the photo. The blonde is no longer in the photo. Yeah, and I made a note that uh, you've always been here, Mr. Torrance. <laughs> like, yep. That was kind of like a moment there. And this is another one of those moments where you can't reconcile like the two halves of the story being different. Because we now have both groups of detectives, and they're talking about how... Oh yeah, this is definitely the work of Fred, but also Pete's fingerprints were here. So there's some back and forth on this whole bit. It's it's all four detectives now, right? It's like the two from the beginning of the movie and then the two that have been trailing Pete. Yeah, exactly. So all said and done, like Andy's presence in both the weird crossover with the photo, now this crossover with the detectives and the fingerprints, like there's definitely some bleed over between these two. So they're not distinctly two separate storylines so all the like well this is just in this person's head a lot of it is but how much of it is and is not i you know that's i think if we like go at this from the standpoint of trying to analyze like the plot you're never going to get there right you can we can talk about the meanings of things and some of the underlying stuff but we're never going to rationalize the plot of this movie so why bother pete and alice now having you know, robbed Andy, they head out to the desert and they're going to hide out in a cabin where like the guy that she's bringing all the stolen stuff to supposedly lives, right? They get there, they start having sex again outside the car, just in the dirt, in the headlights, right? So that seems like a weird place to have sex, first of all. And this is the other moment where I think a lot of the, like, subtext of this movie comes out because he says something along the lines of, like, I love you, you know, I just want to have you forever or whatever. And she leans over into his ear and just says, you will never have me. And I think that's a lot of, like, the relationship subtext of this movie in a nutshell. It's just Fred at the beginning of the movie, is starting to see these signs of infidelity and he's growing more jealous and angry because she's doing what she wants to do. She's doing her thing. Their relationship is not working. He's not happy with their relationship. She's clearly not happy with their relationship. He's possessive of her in that way that a lot of men are with their significant others. And just her moment there where she says, you will never have me, says... All of it right there like that's immediately you know the point where in no universe no matter how broken away and disassociated you are even when you literally become a completely different person where everything seems to work better where the sex works better where the relationship seems to work better you will never have me you know everything seems to kind of culminate there like right after she says that she gets up and goes into the cabin and disappears and then and this is almost at like the two hour mark of the movie. All of a sudden he's Bill Pullman again. He's Fred again. Yeah. And so I think it's very interesting that right after like that sex scene and then her saying that line to him, Pete becomes Fred again. Yeah. I, that's the context is all over the place right there. Yeah, that's that's where the disassociative moment like 100% breaks. We've seen all this bleed over this whole time where things are starting to kind of slowly crack. But the moment where she says, 
as a different person as he's a different person and she's literally a different person in a different like possible timeline and location even in a different fucking multiverse she says you will never have me and that's finally the moment that kind of breaks his fantasy um so now you know bill pullman is in the desert he's at the cabin that we kind of see earlier from his dream the exploding in reverse cabin um so he goes in and alice is not there she just completely disappears into the nothingness of this cabin but who is there is the fucking mystery man again the scene where you first see him at the party that's the one that's probably the most famous scene from this movie and a lot of people say it is the creepiest however i think this next scene with the mystery man is the creepiest part of the movie in my own opinion he's there he's definitely the one who has been filming this whole time because you now see him with the video camera and you know he starts recording fred and fred like at this point like starts backing the fuck out he's like who are you and then or the mystery man the mystery man has my favorite line in the movie where he says who the fuck are you like the mystery man's whole attitude almost becomes menacing at this point now and like he slowly starts moving towards fred like as if he's chasing him while recording yeah well yeah, with like, the video while camera. recording he j- like with a fucking like anger and like grimace on his face yeah like puts the camera up to his eye looking through the viewfinder like it's fucking painful to like be like experiencing this moment through the camera but then at that moment yeah he says like who the fuck are you yeah it's like he's mad at fred because fred doesn't realize truly who he is yeah, Fred is Fred is still like forcing himself to be in denial of his wife's murder and like everything that's happened up to this point and refuses to take responsibility for it. Yeah, so Fred like runs the fuck back to the the car and there's a shot in this that creeps me out the most out of any shot in this movie of the mystery man still holding the camera kind of chasing him like walk chasing towards him almost like a, a like a slasher movie. And he's like, puts out his hand, like he if he touches him, he's dead, basically. But he's also holding the camera still in his other hand. So like a zombie, he's reaching out at him as like he's about to touch the car. And then Fred just like kicks on the engine and just peels the fuck out of there. So Fred drives eventually to another hotel. Um, this is the Lost Highway Hotel. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Yep. So he finally confronts... Mr. Eddie and Renee, again, brunette Renee, having sex. We're not sure, like, how he knew why to go there. Again, at this point, we're kind of wondering, like, okay, Mr. Eddie and Dick Laurent, like, how do they cross over into these different stories? Like, is Mr. Eddie the version of Robert Loggia from the Pete story? Is Dick Laurent the version of that character from the Fred and Renee story? Like, at this point, like, it doesn't fucking matter. Like, it's all bled together. Mr. Eddie... And Renee are having sex. Renee leaves, and at that point, Fred, like, basically, he, like, kidnaps Mr. Eddie, ties him up, throws him in the trunk of the car, and drags him back out to the desert. When he's, like, walking through the hotel, like, doesn't he at one point open the door of another room, and, like, it's, like, all these, like, fucked up porn sexual acts happening in all all the rooms or something? There's brief flashes and i think one of these moments does happen with balthazar getty earlier when they're at andy's house and i didn't mention it because i don't really i still don't know like how to square any of this or what the purpose of it is but he starts to have another headachey moment and a hallway in andy's house turns into 
a hallway from this shitty motel, and he walks into, like, room number 26 and sees another version of Renee slash Alice, this time with red hair, being fucked, and she kind of looks at him and... You know, it's just like, yeah, is this what you wanted or whatever? Like, is this what you've always imagined? And he kind of walks away, but it, that doesn't quite come back up. But that hallway is the same as the hallway that Bill Pullman, like, goes down at this hotel and finds the two of them together. <laughs> doesn't Lynch use Ramstein in both these scenes? Yeah, he uses, like, Rammstein, like, just little snippets of it here and there, but it's always at these, like, really sexual moments, and I'm sure that that is on purpose, because this is not, like, the good, wholesome kind of sex. This is very much the, like, sex that is about control and exploitation. I would not be shocked if he just, like, kind of threw in that scene where it's just, like, oh, more nightmare logic, bleeding of reality, just so he could play that song yeah <laughs> i'm not necessarily saying rumstein is all about that i'm just saying like yeah. the tone of that song like fits what he's trying to do there oh no it fit it fits well even though it probably has nothing to do with like what's actually happening on screen yeah and again i, I just probably it probably was just lynch being like i think this would work really well and be neato in this scene yep and there's another kind of flashback where we see we see mr eddie and renee and this is, again, Brunette Renee, so maybe we're getting, like, the Dick Laurent in the first timeline. But there's another flashback where we see the two of them, like, at a party, and they're all watching some kind of projection porn. And it seems to be kind of snuff filmy, because there's definitely, like, blood involved. Which, by the way, the two male porn actors in that were uh, Marilyn Manson and Twiggy. So they were just kind of in there in this one moment. And it's also fucked up because uh, Mr. Eddie is like fondling uh, Alice as well in that scene, like as they're watching. Yeah, I mean, this moment is kind of we're seeing the gross underbelly side of the porn industry thing that she's been roped into. Um, so this is very much the whole control and exploitation side of that. So anyway, Fred basically ties up Mr. Eddie, duct tapes him, throws him in the trunk of his car, drives him out to the desert. And at that point, you know, he drags him back out. They kind of have a tussle a little bit. While they're tussling, the mystery man shows up again out of fucking nowhere. While Fred is on the ground and they're tussling, he hands Fred a giant fucking knife that Fred then slits Mr. Eddie's throat open with, and he's just kind of like, blah, gargling, bleeding out. And while he's on the ground bleeding out, the mystery man walks up and hands him one of those, like, weird 80s, 90s era, like, portable TVs with the shitty tiny little screen and the giant pull-out antenna. And he's starting to see, like, all of these flashes of the porn scenes that Alice slash Renee has done. And then at this point, you know, the mystery man essentially just pulls out a gun and shoots Mr. Eddie dead. Like, just shoots him right in the head. 
So now we know, again, not to like try to dissolve this fucking weird plot, but we know that like the mystery man can interact with the real world because he literally just shot Mr. Ready. Up to this point, we haven't really seen anything that like makes us think that he's anything but a figment of their imagination somehow. You know, even when like Mr. Eddie hands the phone over to the mystery man earlier when they're talking to Pete, I mean, you could still read that as like the mystery man is Mr. Eddie's like id and he just he also kind of like flips personalities from it. Like I don't know, like you, you that's not important ultimately, but either way, Mr. Eddie/Dick Laurent is now officially dead. And the mystery man kind of whispers something into Fred's ear and, you know, kind of disappears from there. So we then cut to Fred arriving back at the house from the beginning of the movie. And turns out he's the one who buzzed the intercom and said Dick Laurent is dead. And at that point, you know, he's being trailed by the detectives and they see him, and the detectives start chasing him. From there, I mean, that's pretty much it. You know, Fred is blasting down the highway with this trail of police behind him. While he's driving, he starts convulsing and screaming. Lights start flashing. You start getting all the trademark David Lynch, like, electrical sounds, and the blue lights, just like we saw before. His car kind of blasts down the highway, and then we just kind of cut back to the... The two lanes separated by the thin line with the headlights and the credits start rolling. And that's the end. That's where we leave off. So lots of people read it as, you know, this is Fred going into another or trying to like disassociate again and come up with another fantasy like right as he's being executed to like break from that reality. And so the electricity and the lights we see at the end are him dying it could just be another instance of him just breaking away, trying to get out of the situation, not necessarily with, like, the death part of it being involved. I mean, there again, there's a million ways you can try to read this plot, but so much of what works for Lynch is how it affects your emotional state, how it makes you uneasy, how it makes you paranoid and anxious, and the plot is not even secondary, maybe tertiary, but maybe even, like, deeper down than that. Like, the plot is one of the least important things in a David Lynch movie as much as just the look, the feel, how it makes you feel, the atmosphere, etc. Yeah, and I, I've always heard that his movies, like this one and Mulholland Drive, are always compared to, like, a Mobius strip, which is, like, this weird mathematical property of things where it's you're not able to orient correctly orient like the way that the mobius strip is drawn like there's no it's almost like a circular figure the way that it it's folded and everything you're unable to properly orient um they've also talked about how like these are different realities clashing into each other um, and bleeding into like one reality bleeding into the other kind of the idea like uh, the notes I was writing and by the end of the movie I kind of sat and thought about it for a few minutes like at while all the credits rolled my idea of the movie was very kind of much in line like if you are one of those people that kind of wants to try and maybe at least explain some of it I went ahead and started reading a little bit of analysis uh, done by different authors online if you want to read some pretty interesting stuff like it uh, the thing I love about Lynch movies uh, like this one in Mulholland Drive are like going behind after watching it, uh, maybe even more than once, seeing what how 
like all the different opinions on what people thought they they thought the movie was or certain scenes were in the analysis but basically what mine was was that just to really dumb it down was that Fred basically murdered his wife Renee maybe she, he learned that she was having an affair with Dick Laurent or Andy or both of them are getting involved in porn murders her murders Mr. Eddie Dick Laurent is arrested by the police and when he's in sitting in death row creates another reality for himself where he is like this neo-noir hero and like that's why like the sex with Alice is like so much more passionate that's why like he's like this bad boy anti-hero who is up against this gangster Mr. Eddie but because he's kind of fucked in the head his reality starts bleed his realities start bleeding together and that's where like all that crazy shit happens and whether or not the mystery man is like his own id or maybe like a entity from even the black lodge that feeds off of despair and things like that kind of like bob does in twin peaks and then i do think that that ending scene where he's driving away it's like the last it's the last few visions of his psychotic brain as he is being electrocuted to death. I do like that. I do think that's a, a good analysis of the ending and it works for me, you know, and that that's just my analysis of the movie. And it's a very dumbed down analysis. I think whatever you take from it, I don't think the analysis is the, like Mansi was saying, I don't think it's, it's what's important. It's, it's how it makes you feel, but you know, Go out there and, and read the analysis of, of lunch movies. It's very fascinating. Yeah, it's always interesting to hear different people's perspectives. Either they're totally off the wall and nuts and you don't agree with them, or like it's very, this is in line with kind of what I got out of this movie. It's, you know, we, you and I joke about the documentary Room 237 a lot and how that documentary about The Shining is really just a collection of crazy people discussing their conspiracy theories and that's how this can get sometimes when you're looking at a lot of the analysis from people and like i said i don't know how important like the plot analysis actually is as much as just the thematic analysis and if we're talking about how this movie makes us feel again just so uneasy and anxious and it preys on a lot of those fears again fears of infidelity of loneliness of the guilt of having like done something that you know is wrong and like the inevitability of being punished for that and having to like take responsibility for that and trying to escape your reality into another reality when it, it doesn't really work out that way that's not how life works overall like i feel even though the second half of this movie is very different tonally from the first half I feel like this is a good inclusion for this podcast specifically just because it does prey on so many of the things that like bug us and get under our skin just as human beings and the relationships that we have with those around us and can you trust those people do you really know what's going on with them how do you think you would handle a certain situation if you were faced with it like would you again like own it and take responsibility for it or would you like just try to break and basically like wash it from your mind and not take any responsibility for your actions just to assume innocence just because i appreciate like your ideas on film out of curiosity does your own personal analysis regardless of if it matters or not kind of fall in line with mine and the popular idea that 
it's all just like Fred trying to cope with the fact that he did something fucked up and murdered his wife and all that while he's in death row. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that seems to be the most obvious, like straightforward, like this is what's happening. And although David Lynch has been very kind of wishy-washy and doesn't like the idea of there being any explicit explanation of the plot and everything else, uh, Barry Gifford, who again wrote the source material that this movie is kind of adapted from, um, he has explicitly said like, no, this is clearly like Fred did something bad and then he has a disassociative break and tries to like imagine himself in a different place, a different time as a different person And that just doesn't fucking work, because no matter how you square it, like, the reality of his situation still, like, crumbles around him. And Lynch, Lynch at one point even described this film as a psychogenic fugue. Yeah. Like a fugue state, basically. So, even though Lynch is usually cagey about explaining his movies, like, he at least admitted to that but then like i also like like we've met like i'd mentioned before in a previous episode i always do like little little small tie-ins like maybe these realities take place in the same world like the then there's the whole idea of like is the mystery man just a spirit from the black lodge like that shit is fascinating like if yes if there's validity to that that (laughs) would be fucking crazy because that would mean the mystery man is just like killer bob I come down 100% on, yes, that is all in the Twin Peaks universe. Like, if if we get right down to it, like, I really do think that Twin Peaks, Blue Velvet, this movie, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire are all, like, in the same universe. Um, I feel like they're all part of that shared David Lynch verse. Like, he was doing it before Marvel. <laughs> I just like the idea that there is like that that consistency from a filmmaker, the way that he kind of molds and shapes the dread and anxiety in those movies, you know, works. Like it's still like one of the creepiest fucking things I've ever seen is that moment with like Winky's Diner in Mulholland Drive, and it's like so it's so fast and it's so weird and out of context, and it should not fucking work. But the way that he builds that scene yeah. is so effective, and that just shows his skill as a filmmaker. Regardless of like how you feel about David Lynch as a storyteller, he is a fantastic filmmaker from a technical standpoint. You cannot deny that. And we will eventually do Mulholland Drive. I, at least I really want to. So we we won't like get into the detail of that scene but i know exactly which one you're talking about and we'll we'll get into it further detail if and when we do mulholland drive down the line um, but I, I a thought came to my mind like how fucking great would it have been if like so after like the lights flashing and bill pullman's like convulsing and like all this and screaming and like all of a sudden like everything goes dark and then like he pulls over the cops are no longer there no longer chasing him he's just on the side of the road another car pulls up out steps Dale Cooper and he's just like Fred I've got a job for you and it's just them hunting spirits in like nightmarish hell dreamscape worlds of just like the Black Lodge spirits Bob and the mystery man teaming up we gotta de- we gotta defeat them that would be pretty great <laughs> oh man all right well that's another week in the bag Another episode of Watch If You Dare Down, another movie down. This one was probably a bit longer than normal because when when you cover Lynch, especially a movie like this, like Blue Velvet is probably his most straightforward movie and even that has a lot of like <laughs> fucked up disjointedness to it. So yeah, we, we, we had to take our time with this one. 
Yeah, which I'm glad we did because I fucking love David Lynch. That's it, y'all. Hope you have a wonderful, spooktastic week. Again, we are the Watch If You Dare podcast. I am Aaron Mansfield, and with me as always is Derek Smith. Check out our social media pages on Facebook and Twitter. Download future episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Um, I'd like to give another shout out to my little baby brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for our intro and exit music. You can find more of his stuff at Bandcamp under the name Party Gator. So definitely check him out. Um, Derek, do you have anything to throw in before we call quits? Like always, Sally!